BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Rachel Myro in for Alexis Madrigal. What's it like to have a ringside seat to history in the making? John A. Lawrence got to find out during his tenure as chief of staff to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. He wrote a book about it called Arc of Power. How much power does the representative from San Francisco actually have in that hot seat? How has she exercised that power? And what impact has she had on the Democratic Party in America? Also, we'll talk about the attack this morning on her home and husband in San Francisco. We start the conversation. Welcome to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro in for Alexis Madrigal. The Speaker of the House of Representatives is going to be a political lightning rod no matter who she is, most especially during elections. And if we're talking about the House, that's every two years, so more or less all the time. Nancy Pelosi has been the bogeywoman Republicans love to hate for more than a decade, some Democrats too. In his new book, Arc of Power, John A. Lawrence shares his experience as Pelosi's chief of staff from 2005 to 10. Remember the Iraq War, the Wall Street bailout, health care reform. We'll get into all of that and more with John A. Lawrence here in studio with us today. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Rachel. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, you know, we were just hearing on the the NPR newscast uh, the worst of the news this morning. Uh, United States Capitol Police, the FBI, and SFPD are all investigating a break-in at the San Francisco home of the Speaker in Pacific Heights here in San Francisco. She was in D.C. Her husband was assaulted but is now recovering. The suspect is in custody. The motivation for the attack is still under investigation, and we're expecting a press conference of some sort at 930 this morning. Let me just ask you a basic question I think many of our listeners have. Don't the Pelosi's have security at their home here? 
Well, you know, I'd rather not get into security arrangements that involve the speaker and the speaker's uh, family because those are matters that are handled between the Capitol Hill police, the San Francisco police. Um, I would just say, uh, obviously, I, like everyone else, enormous empathy and sympathy and best wishes for for the Pelosi family and appreciation for the, the first responders who, who got there. Um, I, I do think this attack, particularly in light of the January 6th attack um, and other security concerns that always uh, flow with members of Congress heightens the need for strong security systems. Um, again, I'm sure everybody can understand the need for those to be treated in a confidential uh, manner, but it does highlight the, the kind of dangers that public officials face. You know, American politics has always been an acid bath, even before the actual official formation of the country. But do you feel it's it's a lot more dangerous now on a personal level for, for politicians and their families? I think there is much more risk uh, in the sense that uh, the, the hyper-partisanship and the rhetoric, the ability of extreme groups uh, to... Uh, communicate and coordinate with each other is vastly different than it had been in earlier periods of high levels of partisanship, uh, even a decade or, or so ago. Uh, and uh, certainly some of the rhetoric which has been employed and then we saw tragically played out on January 6th of 2021 uh, is not an isolated event. Um, Gabby Giffords, who's a close friend of mine and and uh, of the speaker and, and you know, a valued member of the House, uh, suffered a horrendous attack only a decade ago. Uh, and there are other incidents that do occur. I had to deal with security issues when I was the chief of staff. Uh, and, uh, you know, there are 535 members of Congress. There are thousands of people who work on and visit Capitol Hill. So providing adequate levels of security is, is an enormous challenge and an expensive challenge, but something that is, is clearly has to be revisited in light of these heightened levels of, of danger. To what extent do you think um, attacks like these just come with the job, the nature of, of the job being so highly, you know, publicized in a position of perceived power? Um, and to what extent is it something that has to do with uh, Pelosi's political career? And I'm, I'm not saying that she has brought anything upon herself, obviously not. But, but, you know, more to the extent that, you know, Republicans have used her as, you know, sort of the demon du jour, especially during election seasons. And we're days away from an election now. Well, I mean, I'm trying try not to be uh, partisan in these matters, but I do think that some of the rhetoric that has been uh, used and is continuing to be used, uh, not necessarily by the established political leadership, although sometimes that gets pretty troubling, uh, but the resorting to uh, the use of arms and talking about revolution and talking about uh, taking down the government. Uh, you know, in the past, uh, there were always people of that of that frame of mind, but they were very isolated. And unfortunately, I think one of the unanticipated consequences of the digital age and social media is that they find each other. They can organize themselves into militias or other groups that um, are in in conjunction with some very very dangerous laws concerning uh, the excessive the access to to weapons. Uh, just presents an enormous problem. Not you know it, certainly to political people, but you know there, there there are people in entertainment. There are people in the business community. We just have a level of of violence, I think we see that played out to some extent 
uh, in concerns about crime, uh, and, and 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 that crime affects everybody in the society. So it, it, I think it's it's the, the the mix between toxic rhetoric, accessibility to weapons, and and polarization that allows groups to victimize or, or target each other. I think that's a it's a really toxic mix. I, I know you you came here this morning with the intent to talk about your book, Arc of Power, yes. uh, inside Nancy Pelosi's speakership, two thousand five to two thousand ten, and I. I, I know as well that, that you have a, a keen interest in showing people how the, the gears of power work in Washington, D.C., in you know, relatively recent history. Um, a lot of progressives here in the San Francisco Bay Area have been sort of frustrated with Pelosi's centrism. Uh, she's, after all, a, a liberal Democrat from San Francisco. But but I, I think what's what was so fascinating for me about this book is that it, it really shows the constraints of the position of being the House majority leader or even the House minority leader. You you you're not just a representative for your local district anymore. You you really do have to hold the center quite literally. Yeah, Nancy Pelosi is very fond of saying, uh, if you don't have two hundred and eighteen votes, we're just having a conversation. And uh, her job is not to have a conversation. Her job is to elevate issues uh, that are important, obviously, to her constituency and to the Democratic Party. And to do the best job that she can in an environment uh, that is not entirely made up of people from San Francisco or other progressive areas of the country, to try to move those pieces of legislation as far as they can. Uh, into public policy, and then use that as the basis for for going even even further. There is an intrinsic issue that you that you raise, Richard. That is that is the distinction between uh, being a representative of your own district on the one hand and being a leader in the Congress. And it's one of the reasons I argue that I think it's always a better idea for leaders to come from safe districts. So because they are going, if they're from a, if they're from swing districts, if they have their own reelections foremost on their concern, as many members do, and particularly in these era of close elections and um, and control swinging back and forth. They don't have the ability to appeal to all the different factions that exist within their own party, let alone elsewhere, uh, let alone dealing with the other body, if in Mrs. Pelosi's case, the Senate, the executive branch, and to forge those compromises and still have the goodwill to go back to their community and say, look, look what I've been able to do. Um, you know, Mrs. Pelosi, I think, I remember once we were talking about um, a poll that ha that said, you know, people, X number of people are, are dissatisfied with Congress or happy with Congress. And there was something like, you know, 10 percent. And most people were saying, gee, just 10 percent are happy with Congress. And she said, who are those 10 percent? I'm not happy with Congress. I think there's, you know, there's perception that. Uh, maybe among some folks that she's not, you know, she doesn't understand that everyone would like to see a more aggressive health care bill or a more aggressive climate change bill. And what I, I, what I think is crucial to understand is she's the one who's put a lot of these issues on the table to begin with. And, and she's moved the ball, whether it's on jobs legislation or women's rights or uh, you know, choice or climate change or uh, auto efficiency or health. These are all issues that she went to Congress and said, I mean, her first speech was about HIV AIDS in 1987 when she took the floor, um, said, I'm putting these issues out there on the floor. Can I get everything I want? Uh, no, uh, and neither can anybody else. But her job as speaker uh, is to 
find that that mix that um, allows the the maximum achievement that she can move forward, and then she immediately starts thinking, you know, how how do I how do I move the ball further down the court? Well, it's interesting you're using sports analogies. You know, I I think no matter where you are on the political spectrum, uh, you know the the uh, the most frustrating thing about politics in the last 25 years, really, has been gridlock. You know, like it, it feels like nothing can get done uh, unless it serves the interests of, you know, the, the wealthiest citizens, the wealthiest corporations of this country. It, it, uh, uh, and that's not necessarily just Pelosi's fault, obviously, but, but it, it does sort of feel, you know, I guess what I'm asking is from your perspective, why is it that uh, things have just seemed to grind to a halt on so many fronts? Well, let me let me address a couple of things you mentioned. Uh, and one is this notion that um, that only the well-to-do benefit, and I I think that's actually it's a widely felt perception. I think largely on the on the left, and I don't think it's accurate. I mean, if you look at the the fights that have been taken uh, around. A climate policy or auto efficiency or the the expansion of health care to 30 million Americans or infrastructure jobs or uh, prescription drug uh, costs that have been brought under control or just a, a litany of these issues, uh, as well as many changes in tax policy, they benefit far more than than the uh, the upper crust, if you will. Um, I'm not going to argue that 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 wealthy and uh, and influential corporations and individuals don't have what I would consider to be disproportionate influence but I also think it's a it's a it would be a mistake to suggest that um, there isn't a significant legislative agenda that does get enacted that has significantly benefited uh, working families who have gotten tremendous benefits for example during during uh, the covid crisis or small businesses which have survived or uh, seniors who have gotten uh, health benefits. The key issue for me uh, uh, is that the one party's not participating, and that puts all the burden on Democrats. We're going to talk about that more in a moment. We're talking with House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's former chief of staff, John A. Lawrence, author of a new book, Arc of Power, Inside Nancy Pelosi's Speakership 2005 to 2010. What questions do you have for a man whose tenure as Nancy Pelosi's top aide in the early years of this century gave gave him a front row seat to history? Give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Email us at forum at kqed.org. I'm Rachel Myro in for Alexis Madrigal. We'll be right back after a short break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro in for Alexis Madrigal. And we're talking today with House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's former chief of staff, John A. Lawrence, author of the book Arc of Power. I want to give out the phone number again after assuring you that KQED's news staff is monitoring the situation uh, in San Francisco this morning after hearing uh, that there was an attack at uh, Nancy Pelosi's Pacific Heights home. Her husband was attacked. He's uh, said to be reported to be in stable condition, and uh, more details are expected to be forthcoming. So we'll have those for you as they happen. Uh, but that said, I also want to give out the phone number so you can ask questions of John A. Lawrence, whose book, Arc of Power, Inside Nancy Pelosi's Speakership 2005 to 2010, really kind of explains how the sausage is made on uh, Capitol Hill. Um, his his uh, number, our number this morning as well, 866-733-6786. And now that you've picked up the phone, 866-733-6786. We're also monitoring our Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram accounts. We're at KQED Forum. And yes, we take email, forum at kqed.org. So all of that mouthful passed us. Uh, let's return to what you were just talking about before, which is, you know, this this country for the vast majority of its history has been, a, you know, bipartisan, run by two political parties, uh, you know, who go at it tooth and nail, uh, you know, over the decades, over the centuries. But in more recent decades, that's not really the case. That's right. And uh, I actually wrote an earlier book called The Class of 74, which looked at the post-Watergate reforms. And uh, a subtitle there was The The Roots of Partisanship. There have been dramatic changes in in American society, not just in American uh, in the American government over the past several decades, uh, mostly people who study Congress call realignment, but basically translates into the parties segregating themselves ideologically. And what had been the norm in the most of the 20th century with moderate Democrats as well as liberal Democrats and conservative Democrats, and the same being the case in the Republican Party, really began to change uh, in the 70s and then the 80s to the point where uh, where you had 270 out of the 435 members of Congress who were considered moderates in the 1970s. By the 20 years later, that drops to 29 people and t- 10 years later, that drops to zero. So we're operating in an environment where the parties are are ideologically segregated. That segregation also meant that the parties came far more into parity so that rather than Democrats having a natural alliance because they had a large right-wing base in the Dixiecrats, now a lot of that vote went over to the Republicans. The parties are closer. That means congressional control switches back and forth with much greater consequence and really serves as a uh, a disincentive for the minority party to cooperate with the majority because your goal is now a reasonable expectation of taking over control. And so that ideologically, strategically, the lines uh, have hardened. Now, let me just say this. You only have to go back to the 110th Congress, go back to 2008, where five weeks before a cr- critical election, Democrats and Republicans, Democrats controlling Congress, the Bush uh, administration in its last few months, were able to pass very, very controversial and very consequential legislation, the TARP legislation, uh, that arguably, for all its limitations, did prevent a, another great 
depression. What we've seen, I, I, I talk about that in this book, I call it the abyss, uh, the, that um, I think that was sort of the high point of, of bipartisanship. Because what happens after that is the Republican Party, once Barack Obama becomes president, effectively loses any interest in governance. And if you look at the Republican agenda, uh, there's very little other than tax cuts for the wealthy and repealing Affordable Care Act um, between over that the, the ensuing uh, decade. Uh, and and now I think we've moved to the point where they see government as the enemy, and so it's it's become very hard. All the all the burden of legislating on all those tough issues falls on one party. And it's a very fractious party. I mean, the Democratic Party, <laughs> at least during my adult lifetime, has always been at odds with each other over over what their vision for governing America looks like. It's always been a party. Uh, it's always been a coalition party. And, you know, this is a party which endured uh, its long political majority, 58 out of 62 years in, in, the, in the 20th century, because it had a large segregationist wing. Uh, linked to the liberal Northeast uh, wing uh, of the party. Um, and and that alignment ideologically has changed, but you still have, you know, a large number of people in the party. And the crucial part, of course, here is uh, that large group is the swing vote. And if you don't have the swing vote, um, you're not going to be in the majority. And in the House, particularly a majoritarian institution, uh, if you don't have the majority, uh, as Nancy Pelosi says, you're just having a conversation. There's no value to having a conversation. You want to you want to make laws. You want to make laws, and it becomes increasingly more difficult, you know, as you write in the book, uh, to to make laws with uh, you know Congress people and and also U.S. senators, you know who always have one eye cocked on the cameras, on the TV cameras, thinking about national politics, thinking about how national money might be employed, uh, you know, during their next reelection effort. And it, it, it really warps their ability to, you know, focus on on the legislation at hand. There's no question that money has had a horrific impact. And it's Frankly, the area that I'm most concerned about, because the Supreme Court has taken it off the legislative table to a large extent, um, the, since Citizens United and other decisions, the the uh, the appearance of unregulated money in the in the political system is is really destructive. But I do want to pick up on one other thing you said, Richard, which is really really important, and that is the distinction between the House and the Senate. And it, it's critical for Mrs. Pelosi because she is a vigorous defender of the Congress, but an even more vigorous defender of the House of Representatives. House members run every two years, all House members, and in this in this current political environment, you're essentially in a perpetual campaign. And so Democrats who are running with a very large aggressive agenda, whether it's on health or, or choice or on climate or whatever, have only two years from the time they make these very significant promises and campaigns to translate those into policy. It's very tough to do in two years. Senators have six years. Presidents have four years. And so you're constantly running for office probably delivering less than you promised because of the two-year cycle. And even if you are able to implement them, as we were, for example, with the Affordable Care Act in the first two years of the Obama administration, many times they don't take effect. So you're in the kind of situation I think that some Democrats find themselves this year coming up in this election, where they've passed relief for small businesses, they've passed an infrastructure bill, they've passed health assistance, they've passed uh, uh, legislation to cap prescription drug costs for seniors. But people don't feel them going into effect yet in simply a short two-year cycle. And, and, you know, we live in a very short-term society. So if you don't feel the benefit, 
having a candidate say, I did all these things, people say, yeah, but I don't feel the benefit. So House people have a very, very unique um, challenge that is not the same and, and creates a lot of that institutional friction with, with the Senate and with the White House. And we see that uh, both during periods of united government and during periods of divided government. Um, We're just days away from an election. As we've mentioned before, I'm sure everyone in our audience is fully aware. And, you know, what what Pelosi has been doing the last, uh, gosh, days, weeks, months, uh, is doing what she does uh, better than just about anybody in modern political history. She's an amazing raiser of funds, of money, uh, not just for her own campaign, but for the Democratic Party, for Democratic politicians across the country. Uh, It it goes a long way to explaining uh, why Republicans appear to see her as such a personal threat. and I, I, I guess my, my question uh, for you is, you know, who does she see as taking over after her? Has she been doing a good enough job at, at grooming, uh, you know, people uh, a couple rungs below her to take over? She can't keep doing this forever. So I, I want to clear that I get asked that question. Believe it or not, this isn't the first time I've been asked that question. And, and I, I do want to clarify that just as a a president doesn't decide who gets the nomination next, uh, the speaker doesn't decide who's going to be the next speaker of the House. That's a decision uh, for the uh, incoming class, which hasn't even been elected yet. And and in my experience, the speaker makes those decisions when the election's over and you see what the lay of the land. Are you in the majority? Are you in the minority? Who are the members of your of your caucus? What she has done, and I think is is underappreciated and documented in, in, in the book, Arc of Power, is she has assiduously put members, particularly women and members of minorities, into key positions in the Congress, helping them fund their campaigns. A lot of that money that you're talking about her raising goes to people who would have trouble raising that kind of money but need to get into the process, and then putting them into positions where they will gain experience and, importantly, gain seniority on the key committees in the leadership council, uh, the, around the leadership table, so that they, they over, uh, the, over time and relatively small amounts of time, bubble up into positions where they have that kind of experience within the caucus, in dealing with the Senate, in negotiating with the administration, in negotiating with each other. And that's, that's the kind of expertise that one needs in order to move into leadership whenever that whenever that comes. If you look at the array of the Democratic caucus, which is now, I think, the seventh minority majority caucus uh, in the in minority caucus in, in, and, and the sixth uh, Congress in which there are larger numbers of women and minorities than the preceding Congress, almost entirely in the Democratic Party. A lot of that is is due to Pelosi and Pelosi's strategy, uh, with the Democratic Campaign Committee. But then if you look at the chairman and the subcommittee chairman, they look like America. And that was never the case before uh, Pelosi entered into that that very determined effort to to expand political power within the caucus. We're talking with John A. Lawrence about his book, Arc of Power, Inside Nancy Pelosi's Speakership, 
2005 and 2010, but uh, yeah, word up also 2022. I, I do want to mention KQED is monitoring the news about the attack on Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul, in their home early this morning. In fact, police are having a press conference right now, uh, and there are reports that the attacker was looking for Nancy Pelosi and yelling, where is Nancy? Where is Nancy? Um, I also want to open this conversation to all of the comments and calls that are coming in. Why don't we go to the phones now and Alexandra in Marin. Hi, um, I'm interested in hearing um, what your guest uh, or how your guest harnesses his role as chief of staff in facilitating the speaker's um, goals. There you go. <laughs> well, I always I always said that it was like drinking out of a fire hose, and I think probably everybody in the in the office felt the same way because you have such a multitude of responsibilities as chief of staff to keep an eye on. You've got, you know, most people are focused on the legislative side of things, but there's also the caucus. There's also relationships with the White House. There's relationships with the Senate uh, leadership. A lot of that falls on the, uh, in my case, fell on the on the chief of staff. Uh, the staff itself needs to be coordinated to make sure everybody's rowing in the same direction at the same time. So frequent staff meetings and uh, strategy meetings with other members of our own leadership, with committee chairs and committee staff uh, directors. Um, it's it's really a coordination function. And uh, you're a little bit of the antenna to bring information to the speaker, whether she wants to hear that information or not. It's important that information gets to her. Um, one of the things with Nancy Pelosi is she always knows more than you know. And because she her antenna are the most acute of anybody in the place. And that's why I think she's been so effective. But the staff is constantly bringing you information, whether it's from the press people or from the advanced people or from the legislative people or congressional relations, whatever. And and you have to synthesize that. Um, it's a it's a fascinating job. I did it for eight years um, and uh, uh, which I think is longer than most chiefs of staff have ever survived. Uh, but it, it was because it was so fascinating. I used to tell my wife there isn't a single day I've gone to work that hasn't been an exciting, exciting and I haven't wanted to go to work. She thought I was a little nuts to say that, but <laughs> uh, because she saw the effect, I think, that it had. But um, it, it, it's, uh, you know, it, particularly as an historian. You have this sense that you have this rare opportunity to be there and 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 be part of that process. Great question. Thank you so much, Alexandra, for that. Uh, we're getting a lot of uh, comments and questions, as you can imagine, about uh, specific uh, issues, specific political issues. For instance, uh, there's a listener who, who writes, eight years of Obama and two years of Biden and the federal minimum wage is still $7.25. What progressive, that won't even buy you avocado toast here in San mm -hmm. Francisco anymore, I believe. What progressive legislation have Pelosi and the Dems passed specifically? Well, it's an enormous list of. I mean, again, let's remember that the the minimum wage the last time it was raised was under the first Pelosi um, uh, speakership, and uh, the the uh, the I think there had been ten years or so before that that it, it had not been uh, raised. 
uh, you know, people can take any one issue and say, why wasn't this done? And there's always trade-offs over other, other policies. Um, but I would point to several things. Number one, uh, certainly during the period I was writing about, for example, we had the first increase in auto efficiency standards. We had uh, the affordable health care law. We had uh, massive investments in alternative energy in the stimulus bill. We had assistance to small businesses so that they didn't and the arts so that they did not go out of uh, they did not go out of business. We've had uh, significant reforms of ethics uh, and lobbying uh, reforms. So, uh, yes, I mean, is there more that you would like to have done? Uh, absolutely. And I think, you know, Nancy Pelosi, you know, would not would not, would not uh, hesitate to, to, to agree with that. Um, but it is a, it's an incremental process. And I think that's one of the things that is most interesting about Nancy Pelosi is that she really decries incrementalism as a as a aspirational goal. But I think she accepts the notion that there are limitations and there are 435 people in the House and there are 100 people in the Senate and not every agenda gets to move forward as, as, as quickly as, as you would like. Let's go to the phones again. And Nathaniel in Oakland. Hi, Hi Nathaniel. Thanks for taking my call. Um, my question is about uh, whether the speaker thinks that the Democratic Party's median age, particularly Nancy Pelosi is kind of an example of this, impacts their ability to uh, really align with the base of their party, which has gotten a lot younger over the last several years. Um, one thing that really exemplified this for me was when Nancy Pelosi was asked about a stock trading ban, and she immediately said that members of Congress should be able to participate in that. Um, it really rubbed me the wrong way, considering she sold massive amounts of securities right before the coronavirus market crash. As a member of Congress, I really don't think that's appropriate. And I think that being in office for so long, you get used to certain powers and privileges and can't really associate them with uh, the life of a normal person. So um, I'd love to hear the guest's thoughts on that. Well, of course, the Congress did pass the Stock Act, which um, which regulates the sale of of, uh, of stock holdings by members of Congress. I don't think Mrs. Pelosi sold. I think there are, there are things in her family, but there are arm's length requirements. Ah, but and disclosure there again, right? Like the, the New York Times had an article about yeah. this uh, just a few weeks ago. We see this not just with Pelosi's family, but other other longstanding and really new Democratic and Republican politicians' families, that becomes the way they get around the stock. And I think, again, I, I, I don't think Mrs. Pelosi, and I don't like to speak for her, I've learned not to speak for her, and, you know, I don't know what other legislative ideas are on are on, on the table here, um, but I, uh, you know, I don't think she would hesitate to say we need tougher laws. I don't think that's, I don't think that's a problem at all. Again, just because that's what she wants to do doesn't necessarily mean it elevates itself to the top of the priority list, and that she's able to she's able to accomplish it. But I would say on the other point that the that the the caller raises about age, you know, I don't think that there there are all sorts of proposals that float around about mandatory retirements or term limits. I don't think that's really a good idea. You know, the average amount of time people spend in the House of Representatives is less than nine years. Uh, there's a lot of turnover. If people are there for a long time, it's because their constituents think they should be there. And they have an opportunity in the House every two years to throw people out. And it happens every two years. Uh, I, I really don't think that the, the age issue is, is, is the determinant of whether or not issues arise and are, are, are taken up. Well, we're talking with John A. Lawrence about his book, Arc of Power, Inside Nancy Pelosi's Speakership. Um, and keep, keep staying with us at Forum. 
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro in for Alexis Madrigal, talking with John A. Lawrence about his new book, Arc of Power, Inside Nancy Pelosi's Speakership 2005 to 2010. And, you know, I I believe uh, Nathaniel has uh, left us to answer these questions on the air, but he did have two questions, and you were were going a long way into addressing both of them. But I I do want to pick up this question again, though, of of the gerontocracy. This is not just true for the Democrats. Republicans as well. We, we see people who are in their 70s and 80s and, you know, I, I don't want to be ageist, but, you know, even as a reporter, sometimes I'm, I'm talking with uh, unidentified Congress people and thinking, you know, it's been a while since they were at their sharpest. Let's just put it that way. And and I worry, I worry as just a citizen of this country that that you know, it's not healthy for democracy, uh, as well as the different political parties, to have people who whose hands are resting on the wheel, as it were. You know, Mrs. Pelosi, I think, has always been very enthusiastic about the infusion of new people into the Congress. And that happens every year, either because of people who are retiring or people who are defeated. Um, and those those people come in, they bring new ideas, they bring fresh ideas. The nature of the House itself is that you are constantly being, uh, you're constantly at home. She just likes to say, you know, our people, unlike the Senate, for example, uh, go home every weekend and put their hands on the hot stove, which is the way the founders intended it. They wanted the House to be a, a reflecting. Uh, but, you know, that I, I don't know that that is a factor of age. Um, you know, there are always going to be some old elderly people in, in and there are going to be younger people. And Bernie Sanders is a very old guy in terms of the Senate. I don't know that he is a, uh, that he reflects some sort of staid thinking. I don't think it's an age issue. I think what happens is that, that sometimes people are critical of the slow pace of the Congress um, or the unwillingness of Congress to respond as quickly as some of the newer voices who come in. Um, but as you indicate, you know, Mrs. Pelosi would say and has said to some of those new impatient people, and incidentally, my earlier book, The Class of 74, was exactly about those kind of people uh, who came in large numbers in 1974. I know a lot of you want to make pate, but around here we mostly make sausage. Uh, the nature of a big, diverse um, institution that has uh, rules and, and procedures and precedents um, different constitutional responsibilities to 
forge a consensus and majorities out of those does not move as fast as a lot of people would like. Nancy Pelosi constantly will say, we are not moving as slow as the slowest ship. But the, the truth of the matter is you don't move as fast as the fastest ship either. That's the nature of the legislative process. We're getting some comments. Uh, Daniel writes, I love telling Trump supporters around the country who blame Nancy for everything. Not only is she the Speaker of the House, three seats away from the presidency, but most of all, she is my representative. If I have an issue, she is who I get to contact. Um, we also have uh, Amy writing, Dearest Madam Speaker, I'm so sorry to hear about the attack on your husband and home. I love you so much, Nancy. Keep going. We need you. Um, and uh, bearing in mind that you are John A. Lawrence and not <laughs> Nancy Pelosi, let me let me ask a little bit about uh, Pelosi's interactions with handling of the squad, the Green New Dream, as she called it. I mean, here you have uh, young, very very left, uh, you know, Democrats um, challenging her leadership out in the open. Um, you know, has she uh, been effective at, at reaching out and incorporating them or or are they gaining more by sort of carping from the outside? Well, I think she certainly reaches out to, to, to them as she reaches out to everybody in the caucus. I mean, that's her job. That's how she keeps her job. You know, the, she doesn't she's not the queen uh, of Congress. She has to get elected by members of her caucus and, and, and she has to get the votes. And in a, in, a, in a house where the Republicans have checked out and, and are just you know waiting for the incoming emails from Donald Trump and, and she only has a three or four vote margin. She would be uh, derelict if she weren't paying attention to all of the members. And, and so, of course, she sits and she talks with people. And, I, you know, we would be there till 1 and 2 in the morning talking about uh, whatever people wanted to talk about to get those last few votes. But I think it's, you know, it is important. And, and, and I, I appreciate the frustration. And, and I understand that nobody really believes that those of us who worked in Congress also feel frustrated. We do. But keep in mind that for the most part, in the Democratic Party as well as in the Republican Party, those new voices that are very loud, very, you know, want very expansive legislation uh, to move extremely quickly, they're coming from extremely safe congressional districts. They're coming from districts where they're getting 70 and 80 percent of the vote. Their biggest worry is that somebody further to the left is going to run against them. And so to, to apply that standard to the institution as a whole is not really a fair standard. I, I understand the frustration, and those people are helpful in the sense that they put issues on the table. They provide her and other members of the Congress with the kind of backstopping they need so that she can go to other members and say, look, you know, I understand you need me to make this bill weaker, but I've got my own people that I've got to worry about, too. And, you know, I've got to, and, and she responds to them in passing bills that she knows the Senate won't pass, whether it's voting rights or expanded health care or other things, that she wants to demonstrate responsiveness to those progressive forces, which she very much considers herself a part of. Uh, but she cannot make that necessarily happen. Uh, and uh, when she's dealing with people who are who are coming from districts where they win with 52 percent of the vote or 54 percent of the vote, not 70 or 80 percent of the vote. And by and large, when you talk about the squad and you talk about some of those other people within the institution who are most um, dissatisfied with the pace of change, um, they're, they're, they're contributing a useful part to the conversation. But if they can't go out, as I say, and find the votes, then they shouldn't be surprised that some of that agenda just can't move forward. 
at the risk of, of stating the obvious, it makes a big difference uh, whether whether the person leading the White House is on side, as it were, in terms of how effective any House speaker can be. I'm wondering if you can, you know, now we're going back a little bit in time to the Obama administration, if you can explain uh, the lack of consequences uh, for those, particularly in banking and finance, responsible for the housing crisis of 2008. Some of us still remember the Great Recession that followed, right, that cost so many people, so many Americans, their jobs, their savings, their homes. I mean, and and many would say, you know, sort of uh, sow the seeds for some of what we're suffering today in 2022. Well, I think that's true, both economically and also in terms of, I think, f- fueling the rise of the Tea Party and a lot of resentment uh, at government. Well, again, I think, you know, we were present. First of all, Pelosi, Barney Frank, uh, others uh, in the who, who worked around the regulatory issues were extremely critical of the uh, of the Bush administration for reducing regulation of the financial services industry. And I think subsequently, Hank Paulson and others who are in the administration have acknowledged that maybe they weren't doing enough and allowed the, the situation to spiral out of effect. Frank was holding hearings uh, more than a year before the September 18, 2008 uh, a crash uh, loomed before the Congress. Um, what was presented at that time was an imminent crisis, uh, not only in terms of the American economy, but the world economy, of literally tens of millions of people potentially losing not only jobs, but having savings accounts, uh, college accounts, pension accounts just wiped out uh, if immediate action weren't taken. Nobody in the Congress wanted to vote $800 million, $800 billion six weeks before the election to the most unpopular human beings on the planet, the people who had precipitated the crisis. And instead, what what we did was, yes, we passed that legislation, but we incorporated some very important components into it. Probably the most important one that Nancy Pelosi insisted upon, said there will be no legislation if there isn't a requirement that those receiving the benefits of the TARP legislation pay back everything they got with interest. And what a lot of people don't realize is we made over $100 billion in profit from the TARP. 100% of TARP was paid back, plus $100 billion in interest from those institutions that had benefited. There was, however, uh, at the time, a lot of negotiation with first the Bush administration and then the Obama administration to incorporate um, golden parachute restrictions on on retirees, uh, executives, uh, re- restrictions on pay bonuses, we could not get those through the the, the Senate, uh, and so they dropped out of the package. Some of them were later added into the Barney the, into Barney Frank's Dodd Frank legislation, uh, and there were obviously there were there were efforts to stimulate the housing market and provide low income housing uh, assistance uh, that both the Bush administration and the Obama administration failed to follow up on, which we were promised and and became quite a, an issue. I, I talk about in the book quite an issue of con of of, of confrontation between the Speaker and and President Obama. Yeah, you get it. Something there too, which is you know even if you're ostensibly in the same party, uh, you know if your president wants to go a different way, uh, good luck. Well, I mean, this is a critical part of the book, and that is is this institutional clashing that even when you control all the all the levers of power. Not only do you have the factional, the ideological distinctions within the House and the Senate, but you have very different 
institutional interests between the House and the Senate. And you've certainly seen that with the Build Back Better bill in this most recent Congress. But that goes back to almost any piece of legislation. The Senate loves to use its procedural advantages, particularly the filibuster. And the House is constantly faced with uh, you know, we're the institution where, by the, by the design, we represent minorities much more. We represent local communities much more. And so there's that dynamic tension that is always uh, there. I, I tell a story in the book where right after we have this wonderful celebration of the uh, passage of the Affordable Care Act, President Obama calls the speaker, and he, ha- he gets a sense that there's something going on. And he says, what's your problem with me? And she says, you don't respect the House. Not that you don't respect the Congress. You don't respect the House because the House faces unique problems in terms of passing legislation and yet is constantly, for reasons we probably don't have time to go into, put in a situation where, as Steny Hoyer, the majority leader, says, it's either the Senate version, it's my way or the highway. This is all that can pass the Senate. So you're constantly having to go back to the House and say, yes, you passed legislation that had tougher provisions. They can't pass the Senate. It's this version or none. And that is an institutional tension that that constantly rankles uh, any House member, and certainly certainly would rankle the Speaker. Kai tweets, I'm frustrated at the lack of willingness to fail, trying big things on occasion, i.e. protecting abortion, minimum wage, gun control. The GOP gets in and tries and thankfully fails to impeach Obama and repeal ACA nonstop. But at least they're doing what they promised their voters. Well, I wouldn't. I'm not sure that going to the floor and losing is is a is a really good idea because you establish a precedent there uh, that there isn't there isn't greater support. Where if if you know there isn't, as a legislator, your your goal is to build that support to the point where you can bring it up. That's that is a, a point that that hearings uh, help to serve, uh, and that that. The public debate campaigns help to serve, but actually going to the floor and proving that you don't have support for legislation is not is not, in my view, a very effectual way of of making of making the case for for that issue. Uh, why don't we head to another phone call, at Kevin in San Francisco? Hi, Kevin. Yes. Hi. Hi. Can you hear me? We sure can. Okay, I'm on pods. Uh, I, I first became disenchanted with Nancy Pelosi some years ago when she declined to go after George W. Bush and Dick Cheney, war criminals, for getting into a, uh, getting this country into an irresponsible, illegal, offensive war. She said, we're just moving on. Uh, then when there was no accountability for the CEOs of Wall Street that committed these, this fraud where people lost their homes, but not a single CEO lost a job or his bonus. The fact that she lives and represents in a city that is not at all hawkish, that she's the biggest hawk, one of the biggest hawks in Congress. She's never seen a defense budget that she thought was too high. It's $800 billion a year right now, and we're not even at war. And then the fact that we're the only country of the richest 35 in the world that does not have health care that's free of the point of service, I wonder if that's because the Democratic Party, as well as Republicans, receive such a huge amount of money from healthcare and pharma, I wonder if that's why we lost a third more in, during the pandemic than was necessary. All right, Ke- we Kevin, we've got just a few more. minutes left in this hour. Uh, uh, John, I, you know, I, I know there are a lot of different uh, pieces to Kevin's concerns, uh, but pr- precisely because we haven't talked about it, why, why don't we talk about this question of war? You know, Nancy Pelosi, uh, Kevin is arguing, hasn't met a war she didn't like. 
Well, I just don't think that's historically true. I mean, if if you go back and look at the Iraq war, uh, a war she opposed, she was the lone member of the House uh, leadership, Democratic leadership that voted against it. Uh, and uh, she threw out the Bush and then early into the Obama administrations was passing legislation that incorporated uh, restrictions on the way in which the war money was used, uh, that set, uh, tried to set timelines, uh, set uh, performance standards for the Iraqi government, uh, and uh, timelines for the uh, withdrawal of the, of the American government. Now, whether she was very often able to get those into House legislation, President Bush vetoed that legislation. And you need two-thirds of the House and the Senate to override a veto. And those votes did not exist. Uh, so the notion, I, I, it was obviously a, a subject of enormous concern to her that she could not achieve that goal as rapidly. We did, of course, once President Obama came into office, remove, the, remove troops uh, from Iraq. Uh, but the notion of Mrs. Pelosi as uh, a sort of an unregenerate uh, spender in defense, I think, overlooks both her role as an appropriator and her role as a, as, as a leader, as well as a very clear, uh, the very clear record that she had, certainly with respect to the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. Near the end of your book, you quote Pelosi saying, win, I lead, lose, I leave office. Power, she believed, you wrote, was by its nature perishable, to be used aggressively, even at the risk of losing it. As we stare down what may be the end of this particular tenure for her as House Speaker, do you think Nancy Pelosi has used her power aggressively enough? I do. I, I again aggressively in is measured entirely by what she's been able to accomplish. That's her measurement. It's not how loud she can speak. It's not how uh, forcefully she can advocate a position. And she is a very forceful advocate uh, for uh, this whole litany of issues. Remember, she was the one talking about climate change. Uh, two decades ago. She was the one talking about uh, expanded child tax credits back in, in the early 2000s. It's very hard to come up with an issue where Pelosi has not been a, a leader in terms of, of, of looking over the uh, horizon uh, from the standpoint of policy. Implementation is always a much more difficult thing. And, and that, I think, is where this inherent conflict, which is, you know, you can hear in the questions and is particularly a unique feature here in San Francisco, her district, Vis-a-vis -vis the responsibility that she has in in uh, uh, as the Speaker of the House, look, she could, like some members have, just sit off to the side and say, "Here's the position that I take," and if the Congress isn't willing to go along with it, well, then at least I'm going to I'm going to articulate it as clear as possible. But that's not her job, and and it's important to note that if she did that, it wouldn't achieve anything in terms of implementation of policy. And so, just recently, she said with respect to the Inflation Reduction Act, "Is this all we want? No, but we're going to get this, and then we're going to go forward, and we're going to get more." And I think you know that kind of uh, methodical putting foot after you know foot and and moving down it, it is not consistent with what. Um, people on any side of the political spectrum want, uh, but it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, I've always said she follows the political philosophy of that great English political thinker. 
Sir Mick Jagger. You know, you, you can't always get what you want, but you get what you need, and then you try to get more. Well, an excellent reference to the Rolling Stones as we close out this hour. Uh, John A. Lawrence, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thanks so much. I enjoyed it very much. We've been talking to John A. Lawrence, author of Arc of Power, Inside Nancy Pelosi's Speakership 2005 to 2010. I'm Rachel Myro. In today for Alexis Madrigal, stay tuned for another hour of Forum ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.